0: Okay, we're in a series called Peacemakers, and um, I think the timing of this series is absolutely critical because the opposite of peacemaking is peace disrupting, and that happens to be the love language of Satan, who is the father of lies. And one of the greatest ways that peace gets disrupted is through sin. Sin. And so we begin our time together this morning by asking a question. When other people do hurtful things, how do you respond? When other people do things that hurt you or things that hurt the body of Christ, how do you respond? So I want to share a couple of stories with you as we begin. Two stories of two different people who were on the receiving end. Of hurtful things. Um, Has anyone in the auditorium this morning ever shopped at a Handy Dan home improvement store? Anybody in here? So I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So seven or eight or so of you have shopped at a Handy Dan home improvement store. How many of you had never heard of Handy Dan home improvement store? Oh, wow. Look at that. Lots of people had never even heard of it. Well, let me give you a little backstory here. Several years ago, uh, Bernie Marcus was president of the now defunct Handy Dan Improvement Chain. It was based in California. Um, when new management took over, they fired Bernie. And they also fired uh, another employee named Arthur Blank. Bernie Marcus noted several years later, I was, I was 49 years old at the time. Uh, I was pretty devastated by being fired. But I think it's a question of believing in yourself. And so soon after, Arthur and I started to realize that this was our opportunity to start over. So Marcus and Blink happened upon a 120,000-square-foot store called Homeco, And that was in Long Beach, California. And they instantly realized that this concept of an oversized store where you could put out lots and lots of merchandise and then put you know the price tags right on it, cost savings that everybody could see, it sort of had a, a magical quality to it. So they really thought they were onto something, and so they wanted to buy the business. But the business was basically bankrupt, and so they convinced Homeco owner Pat Farah to join them in Atlanta, Georgia. And the trio, along with a guy named Ron Brill, began sketching the blueprint for the store that became who knows Home Depot. That's exactly right. And by the way, Home Depot is now worth over $300 billion. That's billion with a B, okay? So there are a lot of takeaways from this first story, but I just want to focus on a few. Uh, First, Bernie Marcus chose a life-giving response when faced with a hurtful situation. You with me so far? He chose a life-giving response when facing a hurtful situation. Now, Home Depot employs a lot of people. They have hundreds of thousands of customers worldwide. Um, But its significance actually pales in comparison to a relationship with Jesus Christ, and here's why. Home Depot's merchandise can help you build or maintain a house. A relationship with Jesus... Uh, who is building a home for you in eternity, is a lot more important than that. Amen? I mean, I mean for after, after all, what does a man profit if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul, right? Story number two. I was about 15 years old. I don't remember if I just turned 16 or not, but I was about 15 years old um, when on a Sunday morning I was asked to help serve communion during a worship assembly. And I remember who was praying that day. And I remember it was a beautiful day uh, outside. The sun was shining. It was just gorgeous. And I also remember that that was a day when I personally experienced the very worst of our tribe. And I'm talking about Churches of Christ. A deep-seated legalism that even 40 years later is still uh, pretty difficult to talk about. Uh, The bread was prayed over, and uh, we began to make our way from the front of the auditorium to the back. And our church wasn't all that big, uh, 90 people or so, and so it didn't take very long to serve and get to the uh, back row. When I got there, there was an older gentleman who was sitting on the inside of the pew. And when I got to him, I offered the bread. And he sat there, motionless, just staring straight ahead. So I was kind of new at the communion thing. And uh, so I didn't really know what to do. He didn't take it. And so I, I just moved on. We had the prayer for the cup, and the process repeated itself, and so I assumed since he didn't take the bread, he wasn't going to take the cup, but still I hesitated when I got to him, and the same thing happened. He just sat there, fixated, staring straight ahead. The offering came next, and the result was the same. It was sort of a communion-slash-giving trifecta of non-participation. So as the assembly started to come to a close and we began final announcements, that older man got up and made his way to the front of the auditorium. And he asked the song leader if he could say a few words. And he moved to the podium and he said, and this is very important, his opening words are very important, I have been a Christian for over 50 years during communion today, the young man who was passing the trays refused to serve me. And I hope that his parents will take note of this and discipline him accordingly so that something like this never happens again. Now, to his credit, one of our elders jumped up and said, Sit right here on the front row, we'll serve you communion right now. And they did. They prayed for the bread again, served them bread. Prayed for the cup again, served him the cup. Uh, by the way, he did not complain about not having an opportunity to give. I just want to point that out. So I went to the man afterward. And, uh, man, just tears streaming down my face. I was, I was devastated. And I apologized repeatedly. He showed no remorse. Uh, he appeared to believe that his actions were appropriate. He said very little that I remember, if anything, and I never saw that man again. Now, my faith was challenged that day, but I don't really think I came close to losing it. But I did have a major awakening that day, Um, and in my my heart and in my head, and I I would say I had a major awakening in my faith, And, and it was this. If that's what being a Christian for over 50 years leads to, that I wanted a very different understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I praise God that through the patience of many people who loved me and over time poured joy and mercy and grace and the goodness of God into me again and again and again, that I'm finding the yoke much easier and the burden much lighter, even as Jesus promised. Now, there are multiple takeaways from that story. I just want to share a few. First of all, never let someone you don't know make an announcement. Okay? That's one of the the first rules for sure. Second, the older man in that story chose to take a life-taking choice. He chose to make a life-taking choice when facing a hurtful situation. So he twisted the teachings of Jesus to be used as a weapon of the worst kind of legalism, spiritually speaking. And I think the message and the outcomes of the gospel were meant for so much more than that. Would you agree? I surely hope so. So let's return to the question with which we begin. When other people do hurtful things, how do we respond? Will we give life... Or will we take it? And Jesus has a few things to say about this, and I suggest we listen carefully. First of all, Jesus knew that there would always be challenges when living in community. He knew this. And I want you to notice earlier in Matthew chapter 18, if you've got your Bibles, please turn there. I want you to notice in Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 7. Jesus sets up a teaching that follows a little bit later on in the passage. He says, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. And this line is very important. Such things must come. They will come and they do come. Jesus even experienced this with his own disciples. He experienced this with his own apostles where there were times when they just stumbled. They just couldn't get their head around it or couldn't get their heart around it. And the warning here is strong. Woe to the person from whom they come. It is impossible for us to live in community and for us to not trip over each other from time to time. It's impossible for a church of any size. It doesn't matter if it's a large church, a, 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 a mega church, or a small church. There's going to sometimes be sin in the camp. There's sometimes going to be people who willfully and unrepentantly make decisions that, that dishonor God. As this scene unfolds, Jesus moves to a teaching that I think has been wonderfully and not so wonderfully applied over the centuries when sin in the camp occurs. But I think if we apply this teaching as Jesus directs, then the following, the following teaching, it's a powerful tool in the peacemaker's toolbox. So let's explore. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Now, that's inside language that the Jews would have clearly understand. Just treat them as someone that you would keep at arm's length. This passage seems pretty straightforward, but it actually causes some anxiety. One, because there are variations in the ancient manuscripts. I'll say more about that here in just a second. And two, because what Jesus tells us to do here is just not easy. I want to look first at this anxiety-provoking piece related to the the text itself. Scholar Douglas Hare makes an observation. Serious ambiguity is caused by disagreement among ancient manuscripts, while the majority include the words against you. If a brother, uh, we can infer, or sister sins against you, you may actually see that note in your Bibles, right? If you look at the bottom, there's probably a footnote that will say some manuscripts omit or some manuscripts include one another. So while the majority include the words against you in verse 15, some of our most dependable manuscripts omit them. Now, we're going to see here in Luke in just a few seconds that the phrase against you is included, but in Matthew, uh, it is not, at least in some of the manuscripts. Now, when I, when I look at that, frankly, and I may be grossly oversimplifying my response here, I'm not so sure if it matters if against you is in the original text or not. Because this passage is not simply about just making sure that we're on good terms. It's about our brother and, or sister in Christ who is not living the values of the kingdom of God. And that's really the heart of what Jesus is trying to help us understand. What about the second half of this passage that causes anxiety, the part where we actually have to follow what Jesus commands? Well, to answer that, I always like to look for what is in the text, but I also like to look for what is not in the text. And one of the things that's very interesting to me about this text is Jesus does not provide a script on what to say. He provides an if-then scenario that includes two first moves. If sin is involved, if a brother or a sister is sinning, then, if-then, one, go by yourself, two, confront by yourself. Now, that's what's in the text. Another piece that's missing is that this is not an exercise that is designed to make you feel better. If we're we're just confronting someone over his or her sin so that we feel better, well, it misses the entire point of the passage. While we may all feel better, when sin is confronted, that is, that is an outcome of the power of, forget, of forgiveness. It's certainly not the top motivator. Confronting sin leads to dealing with the consequences of sin, and that can take months, possibly even years, to unravel. And so there's this word here in the text, that this anxiety-provoking word, it's the word confront, and it's from the Greek word elingzon. Lings and, on. And, and frankly, it's kind of hard to describe what this word means because it means a lot of different things simultaneously. It's partially a reprimand, pointing out an inconsistency that needs realignment, trying to help someone see that they are not making God-honoring decisions, that they're not providing an opportunity for correction, um, that we're providing an opportunity for correction. But it's also a lot more than that. The term literally means to bring to light. It means to expose. It could literally be translated, show him his fault while you are with him alone. Bring that fault into the light while it's just the two of you talking face to face. Now, this is not the only place in the New Testament where believers are encouraged to confront and forgive. We see a parallel passage in Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 3, the last part of verse 3 through verse 5. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Of course they did. This is a tall order. Lord, help us understand this. Help us not only to hear it with our ears, but to live this out in our faith walk. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. I think the message does a, an okay job, of capturing the essence of what Jesus is teaching here. I just want to read it so that we see a little bit of a contrast. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this passage by writing, If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. If he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch, confront him with the need for repentance, and offer again God's forgiving love. Well, while this captures a lot of the essence of the passage, this is not just about hurting someone, this is about sin. It's about unrepentant, turn your back on God, sin. And I also struggle a little bit with the way it's structured with the idea of witnesses. Jesus clearly understood Torah. And I think that makes perfect sense since he basically co-authored Torah. Very specific stipulations for dealing with sin were laid out in Torah. And the role of witnesses was one of those key stipulations. I want you to notice this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. "A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now you may find this really hard to believe, but this same rule applied even to murder. Notice in Numbers chapter 35 and verse 30, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. There's an even greater... Motivation behind this for the Jews to get it right because one of the Ten Commandments actually states the ninth commandment. Y'all know what that one is, right? Okay, if you don't, here's a refresher. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. You shall not bear false, say it with me, witness against your neighbor. So the teachings of Jesus here build on the ancient text. Texts that were designed to protect the accused, but also designed to protect the accuser when sin, real or perceived, is in the camp. If it's real, then the one who is sinning is given an opportunity for conviction, for repentance. If it is perceived, then the accuser is given an opportunity for conviction and repentance. Some scholars argue that Jesus is using this exclusively as a legal text here, and so that's a valid question, I think. Is Jesus just speaking about legal matters? Well, I think partly yes. But I think there's also a deeper meaning that he wants us to understand. He's talking about how we address sin, how we deal with sin when we see it willfully, unrepentantly in someone else's life. Paul applies this passage, and I think provides some insights into how Jesus wants this to be lived out in the community of faith. Paul applies this passage when he's writing to Timothy on the church's relationship with its elders. And this is what he says in 1 Timothy chapter nine, uh, 5, verses 19 and 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. The word that's translated rebuke in 1 Timothy five twenty is the exact same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 18, 15. It's translated, show him his fault. So so with all of this said, I think that Matthew 18 provides a powerful template for how we handle sin in the body of Christ. And I think it does it at two different levels. One of the levels I think that we can apply this text is in principle. We can borrow the principles of the text so that when we are hurt we can figure out a way to handle that hurt in a way that honors God and restores individual relationships and creates a healthy body. That's in principle. But in practice, when we see someone willfully sinning, when we see someone unrepentantly sinning, we use this text as a way to move forward in that relationship, to hopefully prayerfully convict of sin and to see someone's head and heart realign with the head and heart of Jesus. Now, this is a very difficult text for us to practice in this day and time, and there's several reasons for that. One of the reasons why this text is so difficult is because we live in a time when, for many in our culture and cultures throughout the world, truth is what you make it. It used to be when we asked the question, what is two plus two, the answer was always four. Four. Well, now the question has changed. The new question is, how do you feel about 2 plus 2? And the answer is, well, you know, some days I feel like 4. Some days I feel like 7. It's kind of whatever makes me happy. Second, this is a very difficult passage for us to practice because we are typically offended now by everything. I Googled the question, why are we so offended by everything? And Google yielded 55,700,000 responses in 0.46 seconds. I was offended by the fact that there are so many articles on being offended, okay? That's unbelievable, unbelievable. Third, Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is not a one-size-fits-all text for Conflict resolution. Remember, at the heart of it, this passage is about willful sin. This is about unrepentant. I am turning my back on God, actions and attitudes. And while the principles of the passage can apply to other situations, the specific emphasis on Jesus' teachings is how we deal with sin in the community of faith. And so peacemakers? How do we apply Jesus' teachings here in principle and in practice? Well, first, I think we have to begin with a question. Is what I'm seeing in my brother or sister, is it a sin or is it simply a disagreement? Is it sin or is it a difference of opinion? The principle of going to a brother or a sister, I think, applies regardless of whether or not we're dealing with sin or an opinion. However, we need to make sure that we know the difference before we engage in the conversation. How do I know if it's sin? I think book, chapter, verse is a great place to start. How do I know if it's opinion? If I can't find book, chapter, verse, then that's a pretty good clue. Now, it's not quite as simplistic as that, but I think at least that's a great place to begin. Because here's the key we don't want to sin when we confront sin. Are you with me? We don't want to sin when we're confronting sin. We certainly will try a circuitous route. Well, I'm just going to gossip about this over here in this circle of the body, and that will make sure that that sin gets resolved. So let me get this straight. I'm going to ignore the teachings of Jesus so that I can enforce the teachings of Jesus. That doesn't make any sense at all. It's why Jesus gives us this template. That's why he says, I want you to do this because your brother's salvation, your sister's salvation is worth it. It's worth engaging in the conversation. So, first of all, we gotta decide, we gotta discern is this sin or do, am I just on a different page than this person? Second, we have to check and double check and triple check our motivations. Am I concerned for this person's soul or am I just trying to put this person in his place or in her place? And I think that's a pretty important question to ask. Because, again, this is a passage about the welfare of the brother or sister. Yes, the greater welfare of the church. Yes, the greater welfare of you as an individual. But first and foremost, it is about them. Because we don't want them to to be in hell. We want them to be with the Lord for eternity. So these first two aspects deal with the person who is bringing the charge. The second two are for the person who is receiving the charge. So if you are in sin, brother or sister, if you are making choices that are not aligned with values of the kingdom of heaven, if you are deliberately turning your back on God, if you're saying no to Jesus and you're committing sin, are you willing, if you are confronted, to be loved enough by someone to hear the truth? If a brother or a sister is coming to you and saying, hey, this is going to be really uncomfortable, I'm not even really sure where to start, but I just got to tell you, I've got some real deep concerns about fill in the blank. Are you willing to be confronted? Are you willing to do what I learned years ago? Are you willing to turn your critic into your coach so that you can draw closer to Jesus Christ? As you are convicted of your sin and, and repent and turn, make a 180 degree change so that your head and your heart are aligned more and more with the head and heart of Jesus. And if convicted, are you willing to repent and reorient your head and heart to the head and heart of Jesus? Now, fortunately for us, Matthew doesn't stop recording Jesus' words here, he continues after verse 17. A little bit later, when we get to verses 21 and 22, Peter came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or my sister who sins against me? Um, Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And this is where we begin to see a shift from rules and regulations that are written on paper to owning the principles of kingdom living In our hearts. So, yes, we we use the the practical counsel of going to our brother, going to our sister, but take with you, Jesus says, an enormous capacity to forgive. We're not out to get others in some type of uh, revenge sense. We are out to get others in the redeeming sense. And church, that's that's at the heart of being a peacemaker. I'm going to ask you to pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Help us, Lord, to own it deep in our minds and deep in our hearts. Father, if we are aware of a situation where a brother or a sister in Christ is breaking covenant with you, Father, if they're sinning, give us the courage to go to that brother or sister in love. Father, if we're hurting because of the actions of others, help us apply the principles of this passage to that situation. Father, to have the courage, the wisdom to discern and to go and to restore that which has been broken. Lord, I pray that we uh, would be a people who desire peace, that we would be a people who are passionate about our brothers and sisters and and even those who don't know uh, Jesus Christ as Lord, Father, being in relationship with you. So help us, Father. Give us courage. Give us faith. Give us wisdom to live this text, Father, as you lead us to do so. In Jesus we pray. Amen.